Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello, and welcome back to the second part of our coverage of Wonder Woman. We strongly encourage you to go back and listen to part one, but in case you are not in a position to do so, two things. We are not going to be as overt, perhaps, as we were during the first episode, but nevertheless, I am going to perpetuate the little ears warning through this episode. Also, there is some casual mention of alternative lifestyles that just might require explanation, as mild as they are. And the second thing, a little tiny wrap up of where we have gotten to so far. So Mr. Marsden, creator of Wonder Woman, has grown up and gotten interested in several things. The lie detector, bondage, two life partners, the infant motion picture industry, and now the world of comic books. We have connected Wonder Woman to her origins in the suffragist movement. And now we are going to move her through the 40s and 50s and beyond. And so without further ado, on with the show. Well, there were so many elements in the Wonder Woman comics drawn from Marsden's history. You know, the Golden Lasso is a direct line back to his lie detector that he never managed to get off the ground. He used it several times to great effect to actually revenge himself on judges that never thought his lie detector was awesome. They had other names that were kind of obvious and the golden lasso prevailed where the lie detector hadn't kind of thing. The bullet deflecting bracelets are definitely Olive's wedding bracelets. But another element and one that raised eyebrows was the bondage. Someone with way more time than Susan or I have calculated that Wonder Woman is in chains or tied up or otherwise confined in fully 25% of the panels in the series. And they they made it so that she had to be tied up in that the only way to take away her power was for a man to solder her cuffs together, to put them together. So she couldn't escape. What's she going to do? That's like the whole plot of the stories. Now, images of women in chains is a very classic suffragist concept. Illustrations of women bound by the chains of patriarchy. Even during the most famous marches, women from states where women couldn't vote posed in chains on the steps in the pictures, along with their freed sisters who could vote. Suffragists chained themselves to fences. Margaret Sanger herself was once on stage, gagged and bound, just standing there after she was prohibited from giving a speech and a male proxy delivered her message. So the bondage itself comes from an honest place in his imagery, I think. I mean, that's that's its foundation. Yeah, he had studied it with Olive in college and learned it from Marjorie. No, I mean the fundamental like principle, not the actual. I'm just being naughty. Yeah. <laughs> well, and Marsden would explain it like this. He said he would say one must submit to truth to find freedom. But then there's comics that literally say this is actually in a comic strip on Paradise Island, where we play many binding games. This is considered the safest method of tying a girl's arms. And there's references to. It's important to submit to loving authorities. Yeah. So there's that. I can see why it was questionable, but Wonder Woman came under intense scrutiny by self-appointed morality groups. Her costume didn't help, of course. There were even some book burnings that involved Wonder Woman comics. But Wonder Woman was a powerful female role model in an era in which American women were being asked to leave their traditional sphere in large numbers to help the war effort. Children saw women working. Children saw women taking care of vital functions in the country and their own mothers in many cases. And Wonder Woman was sharing the stage with Superman and his like. She was fighting Nazis and other enemies in the fictional universe, saving the world from peril in the way that soldiers were. While at home, little girls learned that it was great to be strong, to stand up for yourself and for the weak, to be smart, to work, to participate in sports. Their universe expanded. And honestly, just like in kids' movies, I think a lot of the eyebrow-raising stuff just went over their heads. Do you think? I do. But things like 
um, all the women's groups that were in Wonder Woman. For instance, the Holiday Girls. Wonder Woman gets involved with this group of reoccurring characters that are in a sorority at a college and they go on adventures. But that's a group of women working together and all the stories of the Amazons back on Paradise Island, a group of women working together. The actual, you know, details of the bondage and all that would have gone over their heads, but I don't think they would have missed the fact that when women work together, they can get stuff done. Yeah, there was undeniable positive effect on girls' self-confidence. Now, behind the scenes and not known to the public, Mr. Marsden contracted polio very soon into the run of the comic book. And the person that wrote many of the scripts starting in 1945 was a 19-year-old girl that used to be a student of his. And her name is Joy Hummel. And she actually ghost wrote most of the comics starting in that year. Although the deal was that she had to keep it a secret and she had to write under his name and that she kind of had to keep the same philosophy. Although he joked around that hers were a lot more innocent than his and often passed the censors more easily. So that was a benefit to have her (laughs) perspective. But he laid this out in a brief to her what the philosophy was that he hoped that she could perpetuate. It had to be something women could read and get to feeling they could go out into the world and be listened to. So courage, the ability to nurture others and brains, get that in every single storyline. Don't put down men, don't put down women, just put both sides up in equal measure, good and evil. Women have a long way to go, he said. And women should be heard in the world. And that's the philosophy I want you to take forward. And I trust you with my creation. That was amazing. Because Wonder Woman was a family project. Olive and Sadie were involved in the creation. All Olive did for Joyce Hummel was to give her a copy of Margaret Sanger's book, Women in the New Race, and told Joy that was all she would need. So I think everyone prepped her appropriately. And she must have done a great job because everyone was very pleased. Then a series of events. Mr. Marsden died of complications of his illness, and someone wrote skin cancer also. I, yeah, I think it was a one of those situations where he was already compromised, and then I, there was an aggressive cancer that okay. I think is what ultimately. Okay. So Marsden died, and then not too many months later, the publisher died in a freak boating accident. And then the editor resigned, and then the ghostwriter, Joy Hummel, got married and quit. But I will say, uh, I read an interview with her, and she said, actually, I was fine. I I was going to continue. My husband didn't mind. I married a man who was a widower and had a a four-and-a-half-year-old little daughter who was now my little daughter. And when I got on the train to go to work, she started crying and said, Mommy, are you ever coming back? Are you coming back home? And she started panicking and crying, worried that yet another mother was going to disappear from her life. And Joy Hummel said she cried all the way into the office and she wasn't sure what to do. But one thing was clear. She needed to walk into the office and explain to her boss that she was going to have to leave. And she explained that she left one Wonder Woman to raise another one. So it's not that anyone made her quit. It's that she felt her responsibilities lay in a different direction. And it and it was the 40s. And that was just what she chose to do. So everyone who had been a part of Wonder Woman's original team was gone. And even though Wonder Woman stood with the powerhouses of Superman and Batman as the world's most popular superheroes, It looked to many like Wonder Woman's era had maybe come to an end. We would like to thank Skillshare for supporting this episode. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of inspiring classes for creative and curious people. At a time when there's so many important conversations happening everywhere in the world, our voices, your voice, is more essential than ever. And to that end, this week I started taking Find Your Style, Five Exercises to Unlock Your Creative Identity. It's taught by illustrator and designer Andy Pizza. 
I've already taken three of the classes in less than 10 minutes. You can take this entire class in the amount of time it would take you to watch mm, about three episodes of Schitt's Creek. (laughs) And what do you get at the end? Well, what I'm hoping to get is to add another dimension to my writing. I thought it was getting kind of blah. And so I'm taking this class to help kind of unclog that. In the introduction, Andy said this, Thinking outside of the box means creating your own box. I'm going to create my own box. Technically, I'm doing is creating my own personal style guide. And you can do the same thing. Skillshare is a great way to refresh your creativity and explore beyond your areas of focus. I've taken classes in things that I had never tried before. Explore your creativity at Skillshare.com slash History Chicks. The first thousand people to use our link will get a free trial of Skillshare Premium Membership. Receive free access to thousands of classes for a limited time. Be one of the first thousand to sign up at Skillshare.com slash History Chicks. So, Mr. Marsden is gone. Everyone is gone. What was going to happen to Wonder Woman and her legacy? Well, Sadie went to the offices and pitched herself as his replacement. I have the background. Certainly, I have the philosophy. There's really no other choice. Remember, the original publisher had died. The one who had seen Marsden's vision. And the new one disagreed strongly and instead assigned Wonder Woman to a man who did not have a feminist viewpoint. To say it mildly, ladies, helping out during the war is one thing. The milk must be delivered and someone had to drive the buses after all, but the war is over and women were expected to make way to go back home and let the men take it from here, little lady, evidently, even if you're made of ink. We talked about that in our 1950s Housewives episode, how it was a great source of depression and not to put too fine a point on it, drug addiction, because they had experienced the wider world. They'd been useful. They'd been able to use their minds. And now society is telling them to go back in the box. We don't want you out here. And During this era, Wonder Woman's strength and agency were greatly diluted. Sadie did try hard to stay involved. She kept harassing them, quite honestly, until she was no longer allowed into the D.C. offices. But she gave the new writer a dossier on everything he needed to know about Wonder Woman, including like her cusses of suffering Sappho and Aphrodite, aid me. He didn't look at it. He put it in file 13. (laughs) I know. That round file that sits on the floor. He did not regard anything she said at all. By the mid-1950s, the Women of History Center inserts were just gone. They used up what they had, rolled them out, and then started over with something called curious courtships or marriage a la mode, more feminine and I put that in quotes with like an angry face after it element. So one of the most vital elements of the Wonder Woman comic books disappeared. There was more of a romance with Steve Trevor, the pilot who had crashed on the island. Wonder Woman even worked as a Lonely Hearts columnist as part of her secret identity. So Wonder Woman was changing, becoming very diluted from her original concept. It's about this time that we're going to have to say goodbye to the golden age of comics. We are now entering the silver age. And what was the thing that propelled us over into this new time? It was a comics code. We're in the late 40s, early 50s right now. And society is getting very conservative. They're taking a look at comic books. A certain psychologist wrote another book about comic books, only his perspective was that they were the cornerstone of everything that was wrong with children. And he was so persuasive that it went to the government. There was a Senate subcommittee on juvenile delinquency who focused only on comic books. 
And because of this, the comic book industry said, okay, we'll, we'll just self-govern ourselves. We'll write a code, a comic code based on the Hayes Codes and Hollywood. Comic book distributors said, we won't touch comics that don't meet this comic code. This started the same year as the McCarthy hearings. So this is all going on. We don't want things in our society or in our media that's going to affect our national pride and this conservative movement that was happening. If any crime was committed in comic books, the villain had to be punished in that episode. There could be no dying police people. There could be no concealed weapons or kidnapping or unsavory and lurid illustrations. Uh Uh-oh. I know. (laughs) We's in trouble. Yo, really in trouble here because scenes dealing with or instruments associated with The Walking Dead, torture, vampires, ghouls, cannibalism, and werewolfism were prohibited. So, like, basically everything that's on Netflix right now. That is very specific fear. It is. This I will link you up to a the actual list, but it goes on and on. Even the code even had to be applied to the advertising in the comic books. So there was no liquor, no tobacco, no pinups, no knives, no weapons. Even fake weapons weren't allowed. Obviously, no nudity, no medical or health or toiletry products. Man, huh? what's left? Like, I guess chocolate and sea monkeys. <laughs> Over the years, there were several writers for Wonder Woman, and each time a writer took her on as their baby, they changed things. They changed her outfits, or they changed her origin story. So those changes almost always coincide with a new writer. It's not like one writer went, oh, I I think we're going to change this up. No. And they came in, they did things the way that they wanted to do them. Well, Wonder Woman lost her powers entirely in the 1960s. She transformed into a kind of super spy secret agent. That was something that was going forward on TV, uh, specifically an actress named Diana Rigg um, and the Avengers, not the Avengers like Captain America, etc., but the OG Avengers. And unfortunately, adios to her lasso of truth. That's fundamental to her origin story, by the way. And her bracelets, which I bet that just killed Olive Byrne. And you know what? Sadie, too. What Wonder Woman had become was a betrayal of Marsden's ideas of female equality and empowerment. I mean, it is nice that she knew martial arts and et cetera, but she wasn't the same Wonder Woman. She was a different character. And luckily, someone powerful thought so, too. A woman by the name of Gloria Steinem. It was 1972, and a new magazine was about to publish its very first standalone issue. It had before been a supplement to the New York magazine, but it sold out so quickly that Gloria Steinem was able to convince the publishers that this was a viable magazine that women in this country wanted to read about more than fashion and cooking and other womanly things. They wanted to learn about the feminist movement. They wanted to learn about career opportunities. They wanted the pages of a magazine to reflect their actual life, not a fantasy life. And that's what Ms. Magazine was going to do. And doesn't that sound like it is right up one of our old friends, Allie, frequent visitor to the Ms. offices, Sadie. They actually reached out to Sadie and said, hey, we are interested in doing a story about Wonder Woman. Can you tell us about her? And Sadie grabbed that portfolio of information that DC Comics never wanted to see and brought it down to Ms. Magazine offices. And the women there were enthralled by it. They wanted to talk to her about Wonder Woman and what the original vision of Wonder Woman was. So I'm glad to see that the information regarding Wonder Woman went full circle and ended up in the hands of people who actually appreciated where Wonder Woman had come from. And it's at this time that we are going to say a fond goodbye to Sadie and to Olive. They did continue to live together for the rest of their lives with occasional appearances by our friend Marjorie Huntley. (laughs) They lived all over the country. They were together for the rest of their lives and Marjorie would continue to pop in and pop out. The kids called them the ladies. They went by Dots and Betty, but their confession of their polyamorous relationship didn't come out 
until Olive's son Don married Margaret Sanger's granddaughter. And the granddaughter's like, wait, this story isn't adding up. There's some weird things. And she kept pestering Sadie until Sadie told her everything and said, that's the last we're going to discuss it. But the Mm -hmm. two of them, I know, but the two of them did live together for the rest of their lives. And those lives were really long. Sadie made it to age 100 when she died in 1993. She was 100. Nice. They lived together for 64 years. So it was real. And I, uh, Olive and Sadie, I'm glad I met you. Me too. I like them quite a bit. So goodbye to them. I mean, they don't leave the earth at this point in our timeline, but we're not going to return to them. So we ourselves, Susan and Beckett, and the listeners are waving goodbye to them. <laughs> um, so Gloria Steinem decided to put some pressure on DC Comics to return Wonder Woman to her original motif, her original power. And her initial salvo, if I am just talking and not Gloria, was to put Wonder Woman on the cover of that first independent Ms. Magazine with the title Wonder Woman for President. How about that? She also made sure to republish some of the older stories so that younger women who weren't around during the first go-round would be able to see where Gloria Steinem was coming from, insisting on getting her back the way she was. Then she started getting after the guy in charge of DC Comics on the back channels like, hey, 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 hey. And finally, (laughs) he called her one day at the magazine and said, okay, look, we heard you, whatever. Okay. She's got the magic lasso back to make people tell the truth. She's got her bracelets back to repel bullets. We put her back on Paradise Island as her origin story. And she now has a black sister named Nubia. Now, please, oh, please leave us alone. Please leave us alone. (laughs) Gloria Steinem said that she hoped that all of this insistence and all of her calls might have changed the culture over at DC Comics because the next head of that division was, in fact, a woman. But I think DC did try. Now, whether they were trying to get Gloria Steinem and friends to be quiet or they were trying to move up in the modern age, they did at one point plan a six-part storyline, a six-part storyline where Diana Prince would face modern issues like battling extremists and battling chauvinists. That six-part issue, unfortunately, was dropped down to just one, quote, special women's lib issue. And the story in it was a do-over from one that Marston had done very early in the comics. So that's kind of like not even a half-alec attempt at anything. Well, I think the publisher was jumpy about what they saw as kind of extremes of um, politics. It was a very tumultuous time. And they didn't want to come down in print on the wrong side of history. I think they were playing it very uh, safe, yes. I think. But she was, again, the focus of controversy, even within the feminist movement. Is she, in fact, a role model for modern womanhood, like Gloria Steinem said? Or is she nothing more than a male bondage fantasy? Same controversies that swirled around her in the 1940s, honestly. It, That classic thing that seems to happen to feminist movements, we've talked about this before, even as far back as Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, a division that almost injured their friendship and did for a while, disagreements about who was a feminist, what was the goal of the movement, who qualified to even speak, and what feminism means. And that's still happening. And Wonder Woman got kind of caught in that crossfire. But now Wonder Woman was back in the forefront of everyone's mind. And if that happens, TV's going to come a calling. In 1974, Kathy Lee Crosby starred in a TV movie about Wonder Woman that was set in modern times. So one TV movie in 74. It was a giant miscast. I know you guys have not seen, likely, if you're younger than me, because I barely saw her, Kathy Lee Crosby, but she is a blonde lady reminiscent of Farrah Fawcett. And if you don't know who Farrah Fawcett is, uh, you're going to have to Google. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of Varga girls and pinups, I mean, so... And also, they followed the the um, like '60s storyline where she was not a superhero necessarily, but was a super spy. She had a, a track suit that was red, white, and blue. I, you know what? Whatever. Uh, the pilot of the show didn't go, as they say. Like it didn't get picked up to series. It's just a standalone movie. 
but they recast it. (laughs) Not the same producers, obviously. A 24-year-old former beauty contestant, a singer-slash-actress, Linda Carter, who got to put on the boots and the bustier and did get superpowers. She's all over the place. She was on lunchboxes. She was fighting for wall space with Farrah Fawcett's poster in boys' bedrooms. She was, as the theme song says, fighting for her rights in her satin tights. Though, just between you and me, she seems to have actually been fighting for her rights in suntan color legs, sandalfoot pantyhose. (laughs) Do you remember that display? I know. Her legs were like all shiny. (laughs) Pantyhose used to be sold in these egg-shaped packages on like a stand in the grocery store. It was revolutionary. It actually stole the pantyhose business right out of department stores pretty much forever. Honestly, I don't think I've worn pantyhose since... It has to be a year in the 80s. <laughs> I'm telling you right now. <laughs> Tights, sure. But pantyhose, no. Also, Three's Company. Do you remember Three's Company? Janet? That actress, yeah, that actress refused to be seen in bare legs. So even when she was wearing her pajama shirt, she had pantyhose on. Mm-hmm. Thumbs down, pantyhose. Anyway, this version of Wonder Woman began with the original inspiration. So the pilot episode, which is the first one they show to see if there's interest, like introduce the characters, etc., was set in World War II. She was fighting the Nazis for the glory of America, and the pilot went, you know, okay. But the original network, ABC, balked a little about the cost, the sheer effort required to produce a period piece week after week. And they hemmed and hawed, and they just weren't sure what they were going to do. And whatever period they had to decide elapsed, and CBS like was vulturing like hovering in the wings. And the second they could, they scooped it up and just moved it to the modern day. Hey, presto, look how easy that was. That is to say the 70s. And kind of cementing Wonder Woman and the 70s together in the public consciousness. Gloria Steinem brought her out of the shadows and then CBS, you know, shone the bright light of primetime TV on her. And Wonder Woman's looks and her outfits made people feel away. Just like the comic books. (laughs) A lot of 70s kids got, actually, their first exposure to Wonder Woman because a lot of parents didn't want them to see Linda Carter and her outfits on Super Friends cartoons on Saturday morning. So I have a deep association with the taste of super sugar crisp children. Yes, that is what it used to be called. (laughs) Not super, super golden crisp. Um, Anyway, and Wonder Woman. So that, I think, was my first. and then. Babysitters letting me watch the live action Wonder Woman when my parents were home <laughs> was my second. That's cute. That's a great memory, though. So people used to approach Linda Carter and still do. Frankly, I just read an interview. People still do it. And they come up to her and say, oh, I had a poster of you on my wall. And she is like a happy face with a straight line. What am I supposed to do with that information? But she is very, very gratified when ladies come up and say she was an inspiration for them. Because here's what happened to the small lady persons of my generation. We had two role models, two heroes that we looked up to. One was, of course, Laura Ingalls Wilder. Yes, I had a sunbonnet. Yes, I had a calico prairie dress, you know, but I also had a Wonder Woman lunchbox, didn't I? You know, what unbreathable mask in flammable costume did fully half of us wear for Halloween every year (laughs) during elementary school parades? You know, Wonder Woman. Honestly, that's the first case, the first known case of the Halloween costume being less sexy than the original. (laughs) No kidding. I assure you, we'll show you a picture. The face is alarming. (laughs) Alarming. That mask. Those masks. My mother never let us have them because she was a costume designer. So our costumes were always a big production. But I've tried them on. (laughs) They're really hot. Not breathable. Yeah. Every child of the 80s now wearing a mask is like, yeah, amateurs. (laughs) That's right. We had to put it on the top of our head by the end of the night or we were going to pass out. Also, they smelled so bad. It was probably our breath. (laughs) Anyway, what Wonder Woman showed me and all of us little ones was a figure of power and of confidence. Linda Carter said, Wonder Woman is fighting for truth and justice and the secret self that exists in all women and girls. And I joked about the theme song. I did. And the satin tights. But part of the end of that song is now the world is ready for you and the wonders you can do. Make a hawk a dove. Stop a war with love. 
make a liar tell the truth. So there was more substance to it. It it wasn't about brawn. It was about brains. And it showcased we're soft and we're tough. We're sweet and we have grit. We have inner strength and we have outer strength. And I'm not sure that a modern little girl or teen would get the same sense of empowerment from the 70s Wonder Woman. Um, (laughs) It's a little lost in translation. If you go back with modern sensibilities, um, there's clumsy special effects. There's clumsy music. I showed my son the skateboarding scene and I swear he probably (laughs) broke the button off his pants laughing. It is funny. Her helmet is fabulous, but like, oh, oh dear, production value. Um, So that is why I'm actually so into the new adaptation with Gal Gadot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when we decided to do this, that was the first thing I watched again. (laughs) Just to keep those of you who were following comic book history up, that 1970-72 era when Gloria Steinem brought Wonder Woman back from the pages of Domesticity is when the Bronze Age of comics happened. That brings us all the way up to 1987, when DC Comics decided to do over all of their characters, all of their superheroes. There's another origin story for Wonder Woman, as well as everything. Everything got rewritten. It's called in the comic circles, post-crisis. What's that crisis? The crisis, I think it's that they they were too bogged into storylines, backtracking. They were going from one Earth to another Earth, all these different parallel universes. It was just getting really complicated. So they dropped everything back to issue number one and started all over again. And Wonder Woman did get a new backstory, but it was very much like her very original one, more so than I think any of them had been up to this point. And it was actually co-written by a woman, that first redo. It, in their re- redo, they also redid her costume and they changed her logo to two W's like nestled in each other, which looked an awful lot like the Whataburger logo. Oh. So there was... <laughs> <laughs> okay. so, yeah, well, they had... Whataburger had been using it since like 1972. And Warner Brothers, which is now the owner of DC Comics and our in our storyline, I was trying to get that logo copyrighted for food so that they could do, you know, cereals and giveaways at fast food restaurants. And so Whataburger kind of popped their head up and handled it with much grace. We're getting Whataburgers in Kansas City. I've never had one. We are? Yeah, Mahomes um, either bought or insisted. I don't know. Uh-huh. But there's uh, Mahomes is the uh, quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs. I'm, I say it like everyone just knows like who yeah. is. I frankly hardly know except for he's in every single commercial on our TV. And he's a nice man. I'm saying if we're looking at role models, if I mm-hmm. had a little boy that was really into football, I would not feel in any way leery of him idolizing this guy as a man because he is really nice and good. So mm-hmm. I, so there you go. Role models, Mahomes. But um, yeah, he brought Whataburger to Kansas City. I don't know when they're going to open. I guess we'll report back. <laughs> what happened with the rebranding of Wonder Woman was that she was now also recognized as an icon of the LGBTQ community. Because remember, she grew up on an island that was all women. For her, being in a relationship with a man was actually going beyond the norm. So that was recognized around this time. So now she's a, <laughs> she's such an icon for all these different eras. I love it. So that's good. Well, now, the path of an icon is not always a smooth one. In 2016, post the first Gal Gadot movie, Wonder Woman, the fictional character, was named an honorary ambassador for the empowerment of women and girls by the United Nations. And the blowback was almost instantly bad. 45,000 people signed a petition against the decision saying it was insulting. And I think the timing was bad too, because I mean, yes, it was the character's 75th birthday, but the movie was about to come out and it looked a lot like PR kind of. And also, the UN had been under pressure for upwards of a year to choose its first female leader. Okay, so this is like months and months of campaigning by feminist organizations around the world for the United Nations to finally select a woman to run the organization. There were seven women 
in the running, like all very, very qualified, all perfectly able to be chosen. But ultimately, the Security Council went with a man. And then right after this, they selected Wonder Woman to represent women's issues for the United Nations. I mean, come on. No. (laughs) Can you see that timing is very poor? You know, even though they said, well, we altered the the costumes. We we only showed her from the waist up. We gave her a cape to cover the scenarios. You know, it's like it's not about that. And they tried to pull it back. Like, this is all about her origin. But you know what? People didn't know about the origins. Kind of. I mean, the United Nations is like, she's the first female superhero. She always fought for justice. She always fought for peace. And, and, oh, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Just they didn't think this whole scenario through. And so they withdrew her as honorary ambassador. And that is not surprising. No, I don't even understand what went on behind the scenes to get her in that position in the first place. Yeah. In 2017, the new Wonder Woman, redone yet again, came out as a movie. It was a huge hit. I loved it so much. Yeah, me too. The origin story on that one is very close to Marston's original. So Wonder Woman did go back to her roots, although the setting changed in the movie. Instead of being focused upon World War II, the way OG ink and paper Wonder Woman was, this new live-action Wonder Woman moved the action to World War I, to the year 1918. And the director did that on purpose. And I think her reasoning is very interesting. Um, She thought that it would be more relevant to today to place her in the middle of a conflict that did not exactly have one clear bad guy. You know, it's a very confusing time and it was very tumultuous. And to add another layer on that, it was a time when women were just beginning to have agency in the society at large. So it it kind of tied, well, like, why do we keep ending up in the period between 1880 and 1920? Why do you think? Because that's when women's stories start to become, like, more powerful. Mm -hmm. And I think setting it in during that war has a lot more impact. It's a lot more shocking for the the public. Mm -hmm. I mean, the public as in of her time in the movie, you know? As far as going back to Wonder Woman's roots... The villain in the first Wonder Woman movie was Ares, who was a character from Marsden's time. They brought him back to be the villain in that story. And I didn't catch this the first time I watched the movie. Etta Candy, who was one of the holiday girls, she was a sidekick to Wonder Woman and a lot of her adventures. She is the secretary to Steve Trevor that goes on the shopping trip. Totally missed that the first time. She goes through a lot of different transitions. When she was initially drawn, she was kind of a devil may care. She reminds me of Rebel Wilson. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? In in the comic books, like, what have? I don't have to listen to what you say. I'm powerful. And she has this catchphrase, like, for the love of chocolate, which is probably as close as she could get to cursing. Um, But... My favorite part of her in that movie was she said, because uh, she is Steve Trevor's secretary, she said something like, I do all the things. I do whatever he tells me to do. And then Wonder Woman says, where I come from, we call that slavery. <laughs> and then Etta Candy looks at Steve Trevor and goes, I like her. <laughs> I really love the Etta Candy character because it showed body positivity before body positivity was a thing. You know, she, yes. yeah, she, along the way, she learned some, you know, martial arts moves and she always had a quip and she never was apologetic about her size or anything. And Diana and her had a really cool dynamic. So I love that about her. I loved the whole movie, even on my small TV screen. I loved it. Uh, You know, Linda Carter is my Wonder Woman. I, you know, just in my heart (laughs) or whatever. But what the new actress has brought to this is the innocence Mm -hmm. with strength that I think the original Wonder Woman had. She reminds me a lot of, I don't know if you've seen a movie called The Fifth Element. There is a character who has a very long name, but we know her as Lilu. And Lilu is the supreme being. She has been sent to Earth to save humanity from destruction. But first she has to learn about them. So she is the most powerful being on Earth, but she doesn't know how it is. 
and she watches a history of humans and she gets to the W's and she gets to war and she sees pictures of war and what humans have done to each other and she starts to cry. And I have, and the humans are bewildered, like, well, it's, you know, it's war. It's what happens. But she starts to cry and it upsets her. And like, if you think about it, that's the correct response Mm -hmm. to be upset, to be horrified at what humans do to each other. And that is the energy with which this new actress brings to Wonder Woman, I think, like, Mm -hmm. like what we should be thinking about it is totally different than what our blase nature is, you know? Right. Yeah. She's got everything. She's crazy smart, but she's sort naive to the ways of humans in the world. And it's she plays it great in this. I think the only controversy that I've really heard about the Wonder Woman movies is that they don't explore her lesbian background. They don't touch on it at all. It's all a heterosexual relationship with Steve Trevor. She left there. She right. left that life. She left her background. She left her whole childhood. And as far as the movie canon, although, you know, they can change it in the next movie, she cannot go back. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how much screen time they could have devoted to that, given that she's not going to be there. So, I, you know, I see the, the point, I guess, is that she mm-hmm. can't. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Although in the movie, she immerses herself in London 19, whatever it is and learns everything about it, then does it her own way. Like she's wearing the normal clothes and then she says, forget that. I'm going back to myself because it makes sense. And she's back in her Wonder Woman garb. So I would think that somehow, I don't know, this is maybe this is just me wanting it. They could touch on it that she, you know, goes back to her roots somehow. Maybe they do it in 1984, which is the next Wonder Woman movie which was supposed to come out early in October and has now been pushed back to Christmas. I don't know whether it's going to be in the theaters. I don't even think if they know where it's going to be. So hopefully it'll appear on a screen of some size around Christmas of this year, 2020. 1984 also goes back to Wonder Woman's roots with a couple of characters. The villain in this movie is Cheetah. The Cheetah character goes back to the early days of Wonder Woman. She was a character that Marston himself created way back in Wonder Woman number six in 1943. And they're bringing her back. I think that's cool. But I'm interested to know if her background is the same. I think it is interesting that Cheetah started out as a person called Priscilla Rich, kind of like how Etta Candy, Candy is her last name and Candy is kind of her game. Well, this person's name, Priscilla Rich, kind of exemplifies her background. She's a like a debutante, blonde, cool, also with a giant secret inferiority complex. She's kind of a blowhard, which is interesting to me. So she's a blowhard and she's very not very confident in herself. So she overcompensates by being kind of a jerk. Mm-hmm. And that was the gold era cheetah in the silver era cheetah she was an entirely different person her name was deborah domain so i think it's really cool that this character goes with the eras of of the comic there was actually one time when cheetah who's a female was actually a man it was a very short part of one storyline but finally she was called Barbara Ann Minerva, and that's the version that's in 1984. I think that comic book fans must have a very flexible concept of time and people's backgrounds. It, I'm kind of amazed. Like when you get the new issue and Wonder Woman, you know, has no powers and she her friend is different. And instead of being powerful, Etta Candy is now like a damsel in distress. And then Cheetah is a man. Like what? Like I know. <laughs> How do you file these in your boxes? I mean, I just don't know. You accept what's being presented to you. You're open-minded. You're not saying this is not what this person's done all the time. They're not. We've always done it this way, people. Mm, very That's cool. I love. Yeah. They just basically throw spaghetti at the wall. Kind of. It's like it's like all the comics are just a giant brainstorming session. They're like, yeah, that's good. Get that posted. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah, <laughs> there could be so, plot holes and no continuity. It's kind of like doing NaNoWriMo, you know, National Novel Writing Month. You're just supposed to open up your brain and vomit words onto the page, you know, in an order. But it doesn't have to be like a specific order. You can just do it however you want. And the same thing with comic books. So. 
Another character that they're bringing back for 1984 is Max Lord, who actually began in the Justice League way back in the early days. He's another character created by Marston, only he got some super strength and mind control abilities and turned evil. So he's in this. I know. Isn't that cool? So I'm not going to miss these characters this time like I missed Head of Candy. But we don't have um, a Linda Carter cameo. And I'm actually like, we missed the boat on that deal. I wonder if she was asked and turned it down or if it's pandemic related or or is it something people just didn't want to mess with? I just thought that would be the most amazing fan service. Like uh even like Linda Carter as like a CEO of some company with no mention, just there she is. Right. No comment, you know, would have been epic. I would have loved that. Like a Stan Lee in a Marvel universe movie. Yeah, like she's the barista in the coffee store or something. Right, we don't have exactly. to. It doesn't even have to be part of the plot. Anyway, I don't think exactly. they did it. <laughs> no, that's too bad. And to bring the comics back up to our 2020 year, as of this year, the newest writer who's taken over Wonder Woman is a woman named Mark Mariko Tamaki. She is a graphic novelist. She is a former Marvel writer. Now we're talking about the DC universe here. So that's kind of a, you know, crossing lines. Mm-hmm. Um, She has a master's degree in women's studies, and she has her own book imprint that works with only LGBTQIA creators. So what she is going to bring to Wonder Woman should be very exciting. Her first issue was number 759, and I bought that issue as well as 758 to see the difference between the last writer and this one, and it's it's pronounced. So I'm very excited. I'm like a fan of comic books now. This was my favorite like research because I got all these comic books and and picture books and stuff. And I was just sitting on my porch and reading comic books. It was great. (laughs) Classic. Mm -hmm. Well, that will cover the history of Wonder Woman. And unlike many of our other subjects, obviously, with the new movie coming out, the Wonder Woman's history is not yet over. So um, who's to say we might not reissue a little update after we see the movie 1984? (laughs) (laughs) Or at least we'll talk about it on uh, our social media. So stay tuned for that. And now it is time for media. And as usual, we will start with books. I think the main book that we both used was The Secret History of Wonder Woman by Jill Lepore. It's very recent, uh, 2014, I think is when it was published. But she had access to source documents and the Burn Holloway kids, air quotes. This is a very thorough telling of the Wonder Woman story, mostly from the Marston Burn side. The way she discovered this tie-in. She's a staff writer at The New Yorker, and she was working on an article about Margaret Sanger in her research, discovered Olive, and then somehow connected Olive to William Moulton Marsden, and then kind of had a holy crap moment. I (laughs) love that, and I am so worried about future history. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, we're not going to discover somebody's journal anymore, because it'll all be a blog. I mean, Mm -hmm. like, where is all that stuff? I'm I mean, uh, I'll probably be gone when, you know, but I'm concerned in case that we are cutting off the progress of history right now. I agree with all the digital. Yes, I completely agree. Because I have lots of these like photo SD cards. I don't have a device that puts those into photo format anymore. What's on those little chips? I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, am I going to go and mess with it? Probably not. Is it going to degrade over time? Probably. I don't know. Well, there's my soapbox. I have officially stepped off. Well, um, (laughs) another book I liked was Wonder Woman Unbound, The Curious History of the World's Most Famous Heroine by a man named Tim Hanley. And I think that tracked the characters. That looked at Wonder Woman, the character, comparing and contrasting and bringing up common themes more than it covered the Marston clan. So if you want a book about Wonder Woman, the character, and it does talk a lot about the kinky stuff in there. So 
Actually, that was the first book I picked up and I was reading it. And I was like, oh my gosh, we can't cover this. How are we going to do this? Oh my gosh. And then I started reading the other one by Jill Lepore and I was like, okay, we can do this. We can totally do this. <laughs> but if that is something you would like to fall down that rabbit hole, there is a book called Wonder Woman Bondage and Feminism in the Marston Peter comics by Noah Berlatsky. There's a rabbit hole for you. But if you'd rather be more cerebral about it and follow the philosophy of Wonder Woman, a book called Wonder Woman and Philosophy, The Amazonian Mystique by Jacob Held. And if you like picture books, <laughs> Wonder Woman, The Ultimate Guide to Amazon Warrior by Landry Q. Walker. It's a DK book. We've talked about these before. Lots of pictures. This book does a really good job of laying out the timelines of Wonder Woman, which is really hard to do since she's like backtracking and going to parallel universes and, you know, all over the timelines of real world and fictional worlds. So I thought it did a great job of laying all that out and telling you about all the villains and all of her companions. I really liked it. And I'm glad that I had to buy it because I couldn't get it at my library. <laughs> it was 25 bucks. It's a heavy book. It's going to take up a lot of real estate on the bookshelf. You're making some investments. I know. I buy a lot of books because I, I have to get them fast now. Right. Well, um, there is a book of essays, uh, speaking of library books, called The Ages of Wonder Woman, Essays of the American Princess in Changing Times. There are many essays in there, but notable for one essay by one Gloria Steinem. So that is something worth checking out also. Speaking of essays by Gloria Steinem, Ms. actually came out with a book early on when they had her on the cover, Wonder Woman, a Ms. book. And it's just essays and uh, original comics in there. And it's just talking about the origin stories and the sisterhood and politics and romance. And it's a good one. Susan referred to the book earlier that DC Comics is coming out with um, that references modern women. What was the name of that book? Wonder Women of History, and it's on pre-sale now on Amazon. I can link you up. So as to videos, I was able to get this at the time of taping on Prime Video. Also, I could find it on Canopy, which is um, affiliated with your library system. There is a video documentary called Wonder Women, the Untold Story of American Superheroines. And then um, on Daily Motion, and I always tell you that I think it's sketchy. <laughs> so don't watch this on your laptop, only on a phone. Probably an iPhone will keep you safe. There is a uh, documentary called Secret Origin, the Story of DC Comics. Nice. So referred to earlier, there is a podcast called Craft Lit. And the hook of Craft Lit is someone reads you chapter by chapter a book that is in the public domain and then um, annotates it, digs deep into the references and the history and etc. And one of the books they chose to cover was Herland. And that is how I was exposed to that book. It's kind of a random book to have read. So that made me happy when I opened that. It's like Charlie <laughs> Gilman's Herland. And I've laughed like, oh, I already know. So please listen to that. They also did The Count of Monte Cristo. They did um, the original North and South. So anyway, there's a, there's a lot to explore there. And it's also good to be read to while you're doing something else. Um, I find that podcast delightful. I would like to add a YouTube video where the actress that played Etta Candy explains Amazons to you. Um, and she's like sitting by the fire in her full Edwardian outfit and talking about Amazons. So I think it's pretty cute. I'm sitting here making a little heart with my hands. <laughs> <laughs> she's like the exact same personality. I kind of wonder if it's even an act or is that what the actress is just like? As far as websites go, you're going to need to go to our show notes because we're going to link you up to a lot of them, including Comic History at illustrationhistory.org, which is part of the Norman Rockwell Museum in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. But this part is all online, so it's kind of fun to go through. We're going to link you up to the Ms. Magazine covers. Wonder Woman was actually on the cover of Ms. Magazine five times since 1972. That's a lot. Uh, we've got the comic code for you to read. You can read all those rules and wonder if they would survive today. And the answer is no. Two of the links 
that I would like to call out, and there will be others that I'm not going to mention here. Um, they'll be on the website. We found screen caps of the entire run of Wonder Women of History. So you can read them for yourself at wonderwomanfandom.com. It's like a wiki. So that is amazing. And you can read them all there. And then in addition at comicsdetective.com, you can read the entire lengthy text of Olive's comic book article in which she travels to Dr. (laughs) Marsden's house to interview him about how comic books are affecting the minds of the young. So those two, um, I definitely wanted you to be able to follow down those rabbit holes because they're kind of critical to parts of the story. If you're still looking for more rabbit holes, Pete Marston, one of the Marston kids, had started a website called the Wonder Woman Network. It centers on the Museum of Wonder Woman, which is in Bethel, Connecticut. It is private. You can't go to it. But his website will link you up to all kinds of things everywhere, whatever you want to explore about Wonder Woman. And I will link you to a sci-fi wire tour of the Wonder Woman Museum in Connecticut. They can't visit. So this is the only way you can see it. (laughs) And I was going to say that I was going to go out on eBay and try to find a Wonder Woman lunchbox. But I think if I say it. (laughs) Well, I will tell you this. I am so afraid of the deep pockets of Warner Brothers that owns DC Comics that I paid for two images to use as editorial only for the website. And one of them was the lunchbox. So (laughs) maybe I, instead of bringing more stuff into the house, I should simply blow that picture up on my screensaver and just regard it. There you go. And not buy another thing. I mean, I am (sighs) thanged out. (laughs) I also bought two Funko Pops because I thought, okay, what am I going to use for the link? that we put on Facebook and Twitter. There has to be an image on it. Is that advertising? I wasn't sure, but I knew that if I owned something with Wonder Woman on it and took a picture, I could use that. So I bought two Funko Pops, but then I learned that I could use one of the Shutterstock ones. So that's what I'm going to do. (laughs) Unless I get a letter, a cease and desist, and then I'll slap one of my clever Funko Pops. (laughs) Okay. As far as movies go, we've already talked about the current, the 2017 and the 2021. But there's also another movie that's streaming on Hulu. It's called Professor Marston and the Wonder Women. And while the production value is very high, it earns all of that R rating it has. In addition, entertainment value aside, a la the Tudors, um, if you know what I mean, <laughs> um, I would take your thumb and forefinger and reach into the salt cellar and fling a bit over your left shoulder with regard to accuracy. (laughs) There's, you know, some leaps there in this story that make for good cinema. I see why you do it or whatever, but, you know. Yeah, I think if I had to describe this movie in one word, I would say it was sexy. Remember back in the first episode when we were wondering what the Boston Baked Bean Club was? A listener, Nancy, got a hold of me and said, I know what it is. I used to go to Mount Holyoke. It is a social club based on hometowns. So because Sadie was from the Boston area, she was in the Boston Baked Bean Club. Oh, I know. And the Ms. Marvel versus Captain Marvel versus Shazam thing. Ms. Marvel, the Brie Larson, that's Marvel Universe. That's not the DC Universe. So they're just using the same name in different comics. I think there was a buyout. Like, honestly, I think my initial response that Captain Marvel was, you know, equaled Shazam was correct. But if you think about it, if you are a company called Marvel Comics and you're like looking around like, wait, (laughs) Why don't we have that name? Because, you know, I think there was some kind of financial arrangement um, where they were able to take that name Mm -hmm. and then move forward with that. And that is how we ended up with the current Captain Marvel. But I was not wrong to say it was Shazam because that's who the original one was. Shazam. Shazam. (laughs) Sorry. That was a TV show, too. Shazam. And that's all I have. So in closing, having learned a lot, I would like to just end 
with a statement from the United Nations in that ill-fated but well-intentioned nomination for Wonder Woman to become an honorary ambassador. Wonder Woman first appeared in a comic book in 1941 and has since been depicted as a global citizen and is universally recognized for her commitment to justice, peace, and equality and is seen as a model of strength, fairness, and compassion. She has become a symbol of empowerment for women and girls in much of the world. Thanks for listening. Bye! If you liked what you heard today, you know the drill. Tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. You can banter with Miss Susan over on Twitter at The History Chicks and definitely go check out the website, thehistorychicks.com. That is where we've got all the links to the resources that we listed. Take special note of the website that we link you to that women from history inserts that used to be in the original comic books. I found those quite fascinating and I didn't know they existed until we did the research for this show. They're very valuable and way ahead of their time. The interim song has been provided by our friend James Harper working as Harper Active and the end song is... As close as I could get to the original Wonder Woman theme, I am just imagining a chase scene or um, (laughs) she's like getting ready with her skateboard and helmet to uh, go catch the bad guys. It just made me laugh when I heard it. It's just an instrumental like short piece. And I just wanted to share it with you. It's called Fantasy by a band called The Old Recruits. See you next time. Thank you.